When most people talk about knowing their ABCs, they're referencing the alphabet. But here at Animal Behavior Conversations, the podcast of the ABMA, we're talking about the ABCs of behavior. Each week, we'll discuss a topic in the world of animal training and break down the science of behavior change. One of the great things about behavior and training is that it relates to animals of every kind. So whether you're training a lion or a tiger or a bear, oh my, or your pet at home, this podcast is for you. So without further ado, let's talk some training. Hello and welcome to Animal Behavior Conversations, the podcast of the ABMA. Today we're talking about criteria with special guest Becky Wolf. This podcast is presented by the ABMA or the Animal Behavior Management Alliance, which is a not-for-profit organization with a membership comprised of animal care professionals and other individuals interested in enhancing animal care through training and enrichment. The ABMA continually strives to advance intentional and enlightened behavior management through operant conditioning to improve the lives and welfare of all animals. If you'd like to learn more or become a member of the ABMA, visit us at our website at theabma.org. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. We are so glad that you're joining us today. I'm your host, Shane, and I am a current ABMA board member and self-proclaimed behavior nerd. For anyone joining us again, thanks so much for continuing to come back to support the podcast and to continue to talk about behavior. The goal of this podcast is to implement one of the goals of the ABMA, which is to continue the spread of knowledge and sharing throughout the animal care field. Each episode, we will break down one topic that involves the science of behavior change and animal training. Even though the content that you hear in this podcast reflects the views of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views of the ABMA or the board of directors, we think that the diversity of subjects and viewpoints represented by animal care professionals from around the world is one of the strengths of this organization. Some things you agree with, others may challenge your perceptions and ideas, but we encourage you to listen to all that you hear with an open mind because you might be surprised by what you learn. And as we start out this episode, I once again would like to encourage anyone that has any questions or anything that you would like clarified from what we've covered on the podcast so far. Episode 30, which is coming out in two weeks from now, we're going to have a panel of people discussing some of the questions and comments that we've had people ask us throughout the first 29 episodes. So if you have anything that you would like clarified, a question on something, a comment, please reach out to us and we will make sure that we discuss that in episode 30 coming up in two weeks. And once again, you can comment on any of our social channels or email abc at theabma.org. This episode, we are circling back to something that we talked about in episode 26 when we discussed training plans, and that is the criteria of a behavior. To help me talk about that today, we have Becky Wolf. Thanks for joining me today, Becky. Thanks for having me. Of course. Now, Becky is one of our fearless board members at ABMA on the program council as well. So that's how I know Becky. But Becky, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your journey through the animal care and training field? Sure thing. Yeah. I actually started my career. I grew up on the East Coast in the suburbs of Philadelphia. So while I was in college, I started as an intern in education, took care of a lot of small reptiles, small mammals, birds, did school programs, took animals to the classrooms, did some keeper talks, kind of got my feet wet a little bit in, in terms of being at the zoo and seeing how the zoo functioned, and then interned in their children's zoo with some larger animals and their domestics. 
graduated from college, have a degree in biology, and basically applied for everything I thought I was qualified for remotely, uh, and ended up moving to Dallas, Texas, and working at the zoo there for 11 years. Started as a bird keeper, which is not something I really thought I was interested in until I really just wanted a full-time job. Um, and worked for, with birds for about three and a half years, really fell in love with them, worked with a lot of birds of prey, large hornbills, and oh, then transferred horn to bills? the hornbills. Yeah, great hornbills and rhinoceros hornbills. They were Ooh. awesome. You're speaking yeah, You're were, speaking my language now, Becky. Yeah, they were super cool and made me fall in love with birds more than I thought I ever would. It gave me a huge appreciation for it, taking care of or candling eggs and hatching eggs artificially. So we did a lot of with like oscillated turkeys and some flamingos and stuff like that. So I got to do a little bit of artificial incubation as well, which was fun. And then transferred to work with the fuzzy critters. And so I transferred to work in uh, small primates, lemurs, uh, spider monkeys, TD monkeys, stocky monkeys, gibbons, and otters and tigers. So it was actually mostly kind of Asian species with some other stuff thrown in there. And quickly fell in love with tigers and decided that carnivores was kind of where my passion was and where my heart was. And when Dallas was opening their Giants of the Savannah, uh, volunteered to transfer over to work in the lion and cheetah area and was there as one of the primary keepers for about five years before I left. And then moved to San Diego, which is where I'm at now. And I've been here almost eight years. Uh, my department here is mostly carnivores and hoofstock, which I really like the variety. But last year, I kind of got thrown into being the lead polar bear keeper. So that is where I spend most of my time now. Very cool. Well, thank you for joining us today, Becky. And as we said at the beginning of this episode, today's topic is criteria. So we're going to start out, as we always do, with a definition. And criteria is the specific characteristics of a behavioral response that will be reinforced. These characteristics are defined by the trainer and include elements such as topography, duration, frequency, intensity. We're going to get into those a little bit more as the episode goes on. And also, as we think about criteria, we're also going to have a range of what that criteria is of a behavior could be. But to start out, Becky, can you give us an example of a behavior and its corresponding criteria and practice? Yeah, so I'm going to preface this with most of my training experience, my hardcore, like really into it, into the trenches training has been involved with carnivores. So most of my examples are going to be carnivore based, but hopefully people can get kind of a general idea and use them for other critters as well. So I kind of looked at kind of like scale training. And when we want an animal to get on a scale, what that criteria is going to be, because it's going to involve a lot of the different criteria you talked about. So everything from what are, where are they going to be standing? How are they going to be standing? Are they going to be sitting? Are they going to be facing away from you? Do they have to be looking at you? Do they have to stay on the scale for a very long time? Can they get, get on the scale, be on the scale for just a few seconds and leave? kind of all those different things can be thrown into thinking about scale training as, as easy as a lot of people think scale training. And there's a lot of little nitty gritty details that kind of go into it. I think that's a great example as we talk about criteria being defined by the trainers for that specific animal, for that specific SD. And as we go through this episode, we'll kind of hopefully hit on why it is so important that we're defining this criteria because as you just mentioned, there is a lot of different aspects to it. And sometimes as you're training 
a behavior, you might realize that something that you didn't necessarily think was part of the criteria now is, and then you have to define it as you move on. So I really like that example on a scale of one to 10. I give that a 10, Becky. <laughs> Excellent. Good. Starting I, I off think, strong. Thank, thank you for the pity laugh. We appreciate it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, moving past that. As our definition stated, we talked about earlier, there are four aspects of behavior that we can reinforce, and that falls under the umbrella of a behavior's criteria. We have topography, duration, frequency, and intensity. So we're going to have Becky go through these, talk a little bit about them, give us some examples of what a behavior's criteria may look like focusing on each. So first, we're going to start with topography. And for another little bit of a definition, that is what the behavior looks like. Exactly what you're seeing. Justin, executive podcast producer, said it really well that it's if right after the SD, if you click on a, a video camera, it's everything that you are seeing that the animal is doing until they are bridged, reinforced, consequence happening. So Becky, can you talk a little bit about topography and what that might look like as it pertains to criteria? So I'm going to give a few kind of examples that I've come across throughout my career. So for starts, uh, one of our polar bears, our older female Chinook, when we ask her to sit, which is literally we give her the cue, she's supposed to put her hind end on the ground and just sit there and look at us. So she likes to not put her butt all the way on the ground. So sometimes we have to wait her out and she definitely, she knows, she'll look at you like, am I doing it? Am I doing it? Am I doing it? And you're like, no, I know you have, you have like two inches to just put your butt on the ground. And we have to wait for that last little bit of putting her rump down. So that's uh, for her and that specific behavior is one of the big criteria that we have to kind of focus on with that. With our polar bears, again, when we ask them to stand up on their hind legs so we can look at their bellies. Um, in our bedroom space, there's kind of a bar that runs right through the middle of the, the bedroom mesh. And for them, for the criteria for that is you stand up, you put both your front paws up on the mesh, but you have to put them above that bar so you're stretched out fully. So um, one our younger female, she'll put one foot up and the other kind of down, and you have to kind of wait her out to make sure, again, that criteria is met of you're standing up completely and both of your front paws are above that bar. Um, let's see, what else do we come up with? Oh, so I've trained quite a few hip injections with large cats. So once they're in kind of that sideways position of the mesh and we ask for the, the hip injection behavior and we ask them for hip, that behavior has to look like um, staying in position, not moving other than swinging your hip to the mesh. So keeping your face, depending on where we are in the behavior, either looking at the keeper or looking straight ahead because they're kind of perpendicular to the trainer, um, but mostly just holding position other than swinging your hip to the mesh. We've done blood draws with our lions when I was in Dallas. And one of the big things we worked on really hard was them voluntarily offering their tails to us rather than us kind of using a snake hook, which I've seen a lot of facilities do. So that behavior was get in position, we'd cue for tail, and they would literally just flick their tail under the gap in the mesh. Again, holding position, staying in place, not moving their head end, and literally just flicking their tail under the mesh is a couple of. I guess those are a couple of different topography examples. Yes, I love all of those. Very clear. If you think about when you're coming up with criteria, when you're looking at topography, it's exactly what Becky was just explaining. It's exactly what is 
the behavior that we're looking for in the criteria. How is that going to look? And then we know that's when we are reinforcing, like your example of the polar bear not fully sitting down on the ground. Pretty clear to us, and we define that topography and criteria is they need to have their rear end completely on the ground for that behavior to be able to be reinforced. And that's the behavior criteria that goes along with that specific SD. So we have topography, as Becky just covered. Another thing that we can define in our criteria is duration. So Becky, can you talk a little bit about what that might look like? So duration is basically the length of time from the time they start the behavior to when they end the behavior. So obviously certain behaviors are going to have a much shorter duration than other ones. Um, I picked just kind of a few, mostly that typically have a longer duration, but obviously like when you talked about scale and getting on a scale platform. Um, so for the most part, those are probably going to have pretty short durations to get on the scale. They hang out for a few seconds, they can get off the scale, but depending on the animal, how much they kind of fiddle around, they can't kind of sit still. They might have to hang out for a little bit longer, basically for that scale to kind of, uh, zero or, uh, level out. So we get an accurate weight. So duration for some animals might be a little bit higher just based on how, again, active or calm they are on the scale. Some of the behaviors that definitely probably have a much longer duration are obviously going to be like a blood draw behavior because they're going to have to hang out in one position and let the whoever, either the staff, either the keeper staff or uh, vet techs or whoever is going to do the actual blood draw, that can take upwards of 30 seconds or more. So that's going to obviously require you to train a much longer duration and them to be nice and calm during that behavior. Um, we for one of our research projects with our polar bears, we get asked to do a lot of uh, training projects for studying polar bears because they're really hard to study in the wild. So we do a lot of projects that help scientists answer questions about polar bears. And basically we got asked to, they asked us, could you train a polar bear to walk on a treadmill? And I was like, mm, probably, I'm not sure what this has to do with polar bears, but they basically wanted to look at what their metabolic rate was. So we had to train our younger female to basically it's an enclosed plexiglass box um, around a horse treadmill. And the first part was really easy. We needed her to sit inside this box for 10 minutes and just eat snacks and hang out for 10, 10 minutes. And it basically measured how much oxygen she was using for 10 minutes while she was resting. And then we trained her to walk on the treadmill for 10 minutes. So it's a very long duration for a bear to be inside a box and to be totally focused on walking. Um, so it took us several months, but to build that duration was incredibly difficult because number one, she didn't like that the treadmill moved, she hated it. So getting over that hump was one thing. And then just keeping her interest for 10 minutes is a, is a lot to ask of one animal. Um, but she did great. So that's, you know, that was, we knew that was going to be one of our biggest hurdles when we took on this project was building that duration of, I know it's 10 minutes. That's a long time. What can we offer her? How do we train this to be a successful behavior? That is so cool. When you first started talking, I was like, oh, I'm just like a pol I'm just like a polar bear. I sit in a room and I eat for 10 minutes. And then, <laughs> then you went to the treadmill and I was like, okay, never mind, not a polar bear. I don't, yeah, no. I mean, she didn't go very, very fast, but she still was going. So it was more so than I could say I would want to do on a treadmill. That's really cool. I mean, great exercise for the animal and also sounds like some really cool research for conservation efforts as well. Most definitely. Perfect. All right. Well, that was an amazing example. One of the coolest ones that we've had on the podcast, if I do say so myself, which I've said twice now, and I've never said that before in my life, but I guess <laughs> that's what I'm doing this episode. Anyways, 
Moving on, so then we also have frequency that can be a part of what we are reinforcing in a behavior and part of their criteria. So Becky, can you talk a little bit about what we mean by frequency? Yeah, so honestly, when we were first chatting about this podcast, I was not 100% sure exactly what we meant by this because I don't know that I can come up with off the top of my head anytime I've trained a behavior that has frequency greater than one. So luckily, Justin was kind enough to kind of talk us through it, and it totally makes sense. So basically, frequency is going to be how many times the animal does a behavior uh, per SD or per time you cue it. So um, great example was if you work with cetaceans, dolphins, when you cue them to do maybe a pool behavior or something, they might go out and do a couple jumps or a couple bows at the at the glass two, three, four times per one specific time that they're cued to do it versus, again, if you're just asking a bear to get on a scale, that's going to be a frequency of one. Um, so how many times they're going to do it based on how many times you're giving them that SD? Probably something that people are a little bit more familiar with, if you've never trained dolphins, is that you might ask your dog to do something like spin or wave. So you might give them that SD to, to do the behavior and they might require them to do it multiple times before they're going to get their treat. So, you know, spin in a circle three times, then you get your treat. Perfect. Then finally, we have intensity, which I think is one that kind of can be a little bit broader until we understand what it is. But we are on the podcast and Becky has a great example of what that is. So can you talk a little bit about what we mean by intensity, Becky? Yeah, for sure. So intensity is going to be basically kind of the energy level that the animal is going to have during uh, the time when they're doing whatever behavior you're asking for. So um, it could be something like um, when you're, or, so basically we're going to have it as low, medium, or high is kind of the general way you can think about it. So like a low energy, a low intensity might be I'm hand feeding a, a bear or a cat through the mesh. Obviously you want them to be very low energy or low intensity while you're doing that because you want them to just kind of hang out, be nice and calm, take their snacks and just be relaxed while you do that versus a high, ener a high energy or high intensity behavior might be something like um, when dolphins are speed swimming through the pool or something like macaws doing a free flight, um, large open area flight might be a much higher intensity behavior. Amazing. Thank you, Becky, for giving us some really cool examples through all of those and also making me admit that I don't work out as much as I should. Anyways, uh, <laughs> But as we have an understanding of what all of those are, my next question is, can a behavior's criteria have multiple aspects of what we just talked about? Yeah, for sure. Thinking of pretty much most behaviors, I mean, there's probably multiple of those four criteria that you're kind of looking for. So anything from you asking an animal to open its mouth. So with our polar bears, we don't obviously stick our fingers in the mesh, but they kind of stick their lips through the mesh. So when we cue them to open, they actually basically target their lips to our fingers. So that's kind of a topography. They're going to be uh, targeting to our fingers with one on the top and one on the bottom. And then obviously duration there. We're also looking for, we don't want you to just do it for half a second and close your mouth. We want you to open your mouth for a longer extended period of time. So looking at topography and duration for that one. Things like blood draws, you're going to not only looking at topography, so how their body is positioned, however they're positioned, then you're going to look at duration. They obviously need to hold in position for a really long time. And those are kind of, uh, and I guess you would say that that's a low, in, both of those are kind of a low intensity behavior. So you're, you're also looking at intensity for all of those. So yeah, definitely I would say 
most, if not all behaviors have multiple criteria that you're looking at at any given time. And it, you know, kind of have to checks and balances of like what you're looking at at any given moment, but looking at the behavior overall as to what you're getting from that animal when you're asking it. And when we are talking about these criteria, as you just mentioned, multiple different aspects could be part of that criteria. Can a behavior have a range of criteria, like has a lower end to a higher end of criteria? Yeah, I definitely they can. Um, I think especially when we look at when we're training a, especially complex behaviors early on, I'll go back to blood draws. You obviously know you're going to need to build duration. Well, that's probably not the first thing you're going to be look at criteria wise when you're starting that behavior because that's not the most important thing. You're going to be looking at getting them in the correct position, getting them to, if you're asking for a tail, getting them to, to voluntarily present that tail or their paw or whatever you're doing blood draws from. So getting them to kind of cooperatively offer those different body parts is probably going to be your first step um, and maybe your higher priority criteria in the beginning. And then it's almost going to flip flop once they're comfortable with offering those positions or those body parts in the, in those positions then you're going to be like, okay, now we can switch to what was kind of lower end, which was the duration and kind of flip flop it. And now you're going to build that duration once you've kind of built up getting the animal in the correct position. And I also like to think about this range of criteria, like you mentioned, when you're first training a behavior, but also with finished behaviors as well. And one that I think is pretty clear in my head as we're asking animals to shift or move from one place to another. One day, you know, the higher end of that criteria is they are moving at a certain speed really quickly, but then the next day they might be making that progress. Like they're moving in the right direction. They're going to the place that we have asked them to go to, but they might be walking a little slower. So we're having that range of what is acceptable for that specific behavior while still having the criteria be well-defined. Yeah, for sure. And we kind of mentioned it when we were chit-chatting earlier, um, and we didn't really think this kind of fit into specifically a category, but talking about a little bit about latency and basically, you know, you're going to cue your animal for something and how long does it take them to do that behavior after you cue them? And so early on in a behavior, they may not want to do it quite as quickly as once they're really trained on that behavior or, for a blood draw, inherently you're going to poke them with a needle and it's not going to be probably the most fun. So maybe the next time you do it after a blood draw, you might see some latency in terms of like, they're not going to maybe offer that paw right away because last time they got stuck with a needle. So kind of looking at your criteria in terms of like what's acceptable for the situation you're kind of in and knowing that animal's history of Maybe they got scared one time because a door slammed behind them or something and knowing that, oh, they're a little bit weird about going through this door, so they might not shift as fast, that kind of stuff and keeping that in mind as well. Yeah. And as you just mentioned, that latency is another great part of the criteria of the time between DSD, cues given, the initiation of that behavior, as you said, can then grow or move or could also be part of your criteria. One thing I like to I think about is that if you are asking an animal to come from the back end of their habitat up to the front and you see them sit there, like you call them, you give the clear SD, they're sitting there, 
what is your criteria for how long? Are you going to give them five seconds? Is the criteria five to 20 seconds? Is it a minute? Uh, I know sometimes with recalling animals that have a habitat, you mentioned primates earlier, if we're recalling them and the primates are all the way up in the tree, like what is your latency for them to start coming down? So I think that was really good to bring up as well. Yeah, definitely. And we, when we trained our polar bears for recall, there was definitely, depending on the time of the year and the individual bear, we definitely have difference in latency and, and how fast certain individuals respond when they're cued for that versus some other ones, or depending on what they're doing, they're in the pool versus if they're right by the door. Obviously, we expect the bear that's close to the door to respond a little bit faster than if they're all the way across the habitat in the pool. Maybe they didn't even hear the bell kind of taking those things into account. So tying into what we were just talking about, what should we do if an animal is not reaching the criteria of a certain behavior? We have it defined, we are presenting the SD, and the response of the animal of their behavior is not reaching that criteria. What should be our response to that? Yeah, um, I, I think it's kind of situational. The biggest thing is kind of take a step back and try to maybe figure out, well, maybe why is this animal not wanting to position correctly? Or, you know, why is it not wanting to do as high an energy behavior? Maybe they're just not feeling well that day. Maybe they're just, everybody has an off day. Maybe they just, that day is not their day. So take a step back, see if you can kind of maybe problem solve as to why they're not doing it. Another big thing that I have been kind of taught in general is if you're kind of in a session and there's you know one behavior they're just kind of not really doing that well is to build like behavioral momentum so like asking for a lot of other things that they do really well and just kind of build up that confidence and then a lot of times you can almost yeah here's do a b c and d and now oh here's behavior e that you weren't really wanting to do but now you've done all those other behaviors and gotten reinforced for them and a lot of times just doing them kind of really kind of quickly in a row can sometimes help you get over that hump Maybe you need to change the setup of the behavior. So with our younger female polar bear, when we do blood draws from her feet, the blood sleeve we have, she's really great. She'll put her foot in. You, If it's not quite far enough in, you cue her for her foot again. She'll put it in a little bit further. And usually once she's kind of, we've determined it's far enough out, she just kind of puts her foot there and she rests and she like hangs out while we do the rest of the training. So shaving her foot, touching it, mocks injections and that kind of stuff or mock blood draws and that kind of stuff but our older female we were like okay cool we know exactly how we're going to train this behavior with our older female we've already done it with our younger female it's going to be great and she puts her foot in great but if it's not in far enough or she just gets a little antsy and you haven't quite cued her or bridged her fast enough she gets what i call jabby so she'll kind of just poke her foot out a lot and kind of just get grabby with her foot and so we were like, well, how, how do we help her out, set her up for success with this behavior? And so we basically modified our blood sleeve to help her. Now she has like basically a backstop where her, she knows she targets the tips of her toes to this plate at the end. And that's how she knows for her exactly how far out she needs to go. So we thought it was going to be really easy to, to go from one bear to the other. And it just was not the case. We knew that for her, the criteria of just putting her foot in. And kind of knowing, oh, you're in the right spot was not going to be successful for her and worked with our welders. They created this wonderful plate. And now she does much better because she has a very definitive spot for her to do that behavior. 
I love it. One of my favorite things, I say it all the time, is I love that behavior is the study of one and one moment. And Mm -hmm. really clear with that example of those two bears. And what I really liked about what you just said is that the importance of if an animal is not reaching a criteria to have the understanding that we can change a lot of things, we can take approximations back, et cetera, et cetera, that we can help teach them what that criteria is. Because if they're not reaching the criteria, it's probably because either one, they maybe physically can't in whatever setup that we have, or number two, our dialogue hasn't been clear in what we're reinforcing, what information we're giving them of what that criteria is and being able to recognize it, go back and then give them more information more learning so that way they end up hitting that criteria that we have set for them. Yes, definitely. And that kind of flows perfectly right into the last two questions on this topic. And the first one is, Becky, why is it important to the animal that we have clear defined criteria? Um, I definitely think when we make it very obvious, it prevents them from being confused as to what we're asking them for. And sometimes if they're not sure, I've worked with animals such as this bear, that when she's confused or not exactly sure what we're asking, she can actually get frustrated and kind of lash out or get a little bit aggressive with us through the mesh. She'll kind of paw at the mesh and just be like, I don't know what you're asking. And you can tell that she's frustrated. So making sure you're very clear with what you're asking can definitely hopefully prevent that from happening. And also, I think it's really important to remember, obviously, depending on the animals you're working with, that, you know, having these clear set criteria in terms of where you want them positioned, how you want them positioned, especially for some of these really more complex medical behaviors, it's not only just good training, it's also very important for safety. So anytime you're going to have hands on some of these bigger animals, even if it's a body part that's, you know, a tail under the mesh, um, it's really important for not only keeper staff safety, vet staff safety, also the animal safety that we're very clear as to what they can expect and, or what we're expecting from them. And then also what they can expect in return from us when we ask them to do these behaviors. Yes. And to an animal, they are behaving to what information we're giving them, what we are reinforcing. You, you get what you reinforce. So if we are not being clear and what we're reinforcing, if we don't have clear criteria to the animal, that could be cause a thing for confusion that they don't know what to do because multiple different parts of it earn them reinforcement. And so they might start guessing and all those different things. So I really enjoyed that answer. And I like thinking about it from the animal's perspective, but also switching over to the human perspective. Why is it important to the individual trainer and also to a team that we have clear defined criteria for a behavior. So yeah, so having pretty clear criteria for even the individual trainer or the or the team of trainers is really important. Number one, just like the animal can get frustrated, it, sometimes you can get frustrated. So knowing exactly what you're asking for and not having maybe too high expectations or or kind of jumping ahead too many steps and thinking you're just going to buzz right through a training plan. Because I've definitely seen that happen um, is important. And I'll kind of, for, for the team as well, I'll kind of go back to when I worked in Dallas. When I transferred to our um, Lion and Cheetah building, 
uh, we had they determined we were going to have two daily demos training sessions every day in our training space in our public training space and so we had i think seven or eight keepers at the time and there was no guarantee that it was going to be the same trainer so we and we literally shaped behaviors all as a group we know it wasn't i'm the lead on just siri lions injection training it was literally everybody was training all the things because we had five lions and three cheetahs that we were doing all the basic behaviors things up to blood draws and injections and so there was just no real time with the way that we had it set up and the team dynamic or the team set up and just having to do these training sessions for the public that we could really break it down to like x person is training y animal so it became very clear very quickly that we had to be super super good at communicating and having the criteria listed of okay we've now made it with jasiri lions injection training where now the criteria is okay she's comfortable getting in position now we're moving on to asking for her hip behavior and, and and having her offer that hip so it just that was super important for that specific um instance i know not everybody trains as like a team like that it was kind of i would say for me in my career I liked it because, it, again, it was a whole team effort, but it could also be very frustrating because you're having eight different people trying to do all these different things. But at the end of the day, because we were very clear about what the behaviors were, what the criteria was for that day, what we were seeing with those animals, uh, we were able to make pretty good. I mean, all those cats were all injection trained, blood draw trained, except for one cheetah. And she was much older and just not, she didn't even like to do the picked up the public demos. Most of the time she wouldn't even come into the space. Um, so seven of cats that we did all that with. So it was, I would say successful, um, mostly because we were very clear as to what we were expecting day to day. That is a very pertinent answer to this with a team that is training all these different behaviors, but also it definitely rolls over to a team that has a primary trainer that trains something, but then most behaviors then get passed off and being able to maintain that as having that clear defined criteria will also help the animal understand throughout its learning history and its life exactly what that's looking for. And as you mentioned, can then helps to lead to no frustration, both from the humans and the animals as well. Yeah, and it's definitely important once you would, you know, we have it, what we would consider an established behavior. Um, and if you're passing that on to somebody else, knowing exactly like with the bears when they stand up, knowing that their their front paws have to be above the bar or with Chinook, she has to have a rump all the way on the ground, like kind of knowing the exact things you're looking for, as especially when you're new to that area. You don't know that that bear doesn't sit all the way down and you might reinforce that and, and kind of break that behavior down a little bit. So knowing those criteria, um, individual to individual can be super important. So as we finish up today's episode with the fan favorite training tales, Becky, can you tell us your interesting, fun training story or stories? Yeah, so I have a couple that I came up with that as I was reminiscing about my decently long career i've been doing this for 20 plus years now two involve big cats and one involves ostrich i'll start with the ostrich story um when we were opening the giants of the savannah i was mostly over with the lions and cheetahs but i did help out at um it was we called it the host stock barn but we had guinea fowl and ostrich and they shared a transfer lane with our giraffes and all the other host stock to go out to the main savannah 
And they would go out there and then it was like, well, how do we get the ostrich to come back to the barn? And, you know, the giraffes would come for crackers. The zebra would come for grain. And the way that they trained our ostrich was they, once everybody else was in, the our supervisor, the giraffe supervisor, my supervisor would go out with their key rings and shake them in the, like, literally go up to the ostrich and shake it. And because they were shiny, they would just follow the supervisor down the transfer lane into the barn. And that is how we shift trained six ostrich to come in the barn, just shaking some key rings. And then they would get reinforced with grain inside. But yeah, I was like, of all the things. So always think outside the box because it doesn't always have to be necessarily food right away. It can be some other sort of item if you need it. Especially for an ostrich. I feel like that's just like classic ostrich. They're like shiny. Yeah. Yeah. It literally, we were like, we, they, were, they were like, we're going to just go out there and do this. And we were like, that's not going to work. And they were like, here we come. Let's go inside. So it worked. <laughs> it's awesome. Ostrich are ridiculous. And then two are, the other two are just two kind of behaviors that I've been part of training that are not medical not husbandry they were just fun things that we trained animals to do one was with one of our female lions named lena she was super high energy and just like bouncing off the walls all the time and we actually trained her to jump with all four of her legs off the ground she would jump like probably a solid two and a half three feet off the ground we would just cure and be like jump and she would literally train her to just like a pogo stick just bounce all over the place so was something she really enjoyed doing and we noticed she did it all the time and so we just got it on cue and we would do it just because she liked to do it so again serve no purpose other than she liked to do it so you know if you have animals that do something different you can always just train them to do those things on cue and just you saw the topography of behavior that she was Mm -hmm. already offering and then we're like yeah let's do it that's really cool she was like a little like I said, it was like she was on a pogo stick. It was hysterical. And then the other one was we trained um, our male cheetah to, we had in our cheetah exhibit, we had a Jeep that was half in and half out of the habitat. And so what we, we were like, wouldn't it be a great photo opportunity if you got in this Jeep on cue in the back and then people could sit in the front and take pictures um, or even um, during the process have kids kind of help us train this behavior. And so we literally figured out it involved a ladder and like three people, but we figured out how to do it um, and would be able to cue him from one part of the habitat. He would run around, jump up in there for reinforcement. And we actually, then we were like, okay, now he gets in the Jeep on cue, but now he's not looking at anybody. So we started targeting him through the glass. And during that process, we actually had kids that we would let hold the target pole while we were doing it. So the kids got to be part of helping us train this. And he would get on the queue in the Jeep on queue and kind of, he didn't hang out for super, super long, but long enough that people were able to get photos. So um, it was a really good, um, just again, thinking like, what could we do with him? And also a really good guest experience to get not only pictures with him, but then with little kids that we were like, here, do you want to help us? And they would get to help us do the training. So it was super fun. That's so cool. I love whenever we find ways to bring the guests into that experience and have them truly like understand and participate in the training, the relationships that we have with the animals. I always think that's so powerful and can make such an impact on anybody of any age that gets to experience that excitement. Yeah, definitely. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Becky, for joining us today, coming in at the last minute and 
quickly doing this podcast episode for me. I greatly appreciate it. And I'm sure all of our listeners will as well. And if anyone has any questions for you, how can they reach you? You can email me. It's bwolf at sdzwa.org. So San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, SDZWA. Perfect. Well, thank you so much once again, Becky. No worries. Thanks for having me. And that concludes today's episode focusing on criteria. This, of course, just scratches the surface. So if you have any questions at all, please reach out on any of the ABMA social channels or by emailing abc at theabma.org. We love to hear from you because this podcast is made for you. So if you have any questions or topics that you would like covered, please let us know. And a special thank you once again to Becky for joining us today, James McAleb for our theme song, Ayla on the Beat, sung by the ever-talented Ayla the Sea Lion, all of our ABMA members, and to you for listening and joining in on the Behavior Conversation. If you aren't already a member, please consider joining the ABMA by visiting theabma.org as we all strive to better the lives of animals around the world. Be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on and join us next week on Animal Behavior Conversations. In the meantime, thanks for joining us and happy training. And also, Becky, just so you know, you're allowed to say polar bear butt on this podcast where you don't have to say like, rump. So I like the word rump. It's fun. And there I mean, there you go. Butt, but, but, but. <laughs> Well, that's a blooper. <laughs> there you go. Use it. Feel free. All right. The last thing I'll say before I go, just because it was kind of funny. I almost don't want to tell you. So <laughs> I worked for the first like 10 minutes on making my background Cornelius. <laughs> and I was I wanted it just to pop up. So Shane just, I don't know. But it didn't work. So oh, no. what's a Cornelius? Cornelius is the best Abyssinian ground hornbill that ever hatched in the whole history of the world. At the universe. And he lives, what? The universe. In the universe. In the universe. Okay.